Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew's gospel in your New Testament scriptures. Tonight we will consider the end of Matthew chapter 24. I'll begin reading at verse 6, or excuse me, 36, and I will read into the end of the chapter. To Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. Jesus says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand, excuse me, understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming... He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen for the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of his return. So help us tonight to hear his words, to long for and be ready for that day, and to hasten it, as Peter says, and to welcome our Lord with faith and draw more and more people to Christ and belief in his gospel, that they might watch and be ready and therefore able to rejoice when you appear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the topic of judgment is prevalent in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. You have the denunciation of Israel's religious leaders in Matthew 23. And following that, Jesus outlines the consequences for violating the covenant, particularly there in the first half of Matthew 24, what we looked at over a few weeks. Jesus is very much like an Old Testament prophet announcing the day of the Lord. Just as Jeremiah warned, hey, your covenant infidelity means the Babylonians will sweep into this city and destroy this temple and tear down these walls. Jesus is really just preaching the very same message. 
And having completed his detailed description of the fall of Jerusalem, Jesus now answers the disciples' second question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, like those Old Testament judgments or visitations when God visited his people the day of the Lord. And when he visited, he would inspect and he would deal with his people based on what he found. Well, in the same way, Jesus' return includes both judgment and salvation. Judgment is coming for Jerusalem and one day Jesus will return and that will bring a great reckoning to the peoples of the earth. Now, structurally, it's important to notice that the rest of Matthew 24 is joined to all of chapter 25. So when you think of Matthew 25, if you know its content, you may think of those as the judgments. You have the parable of the ten virgins and the bags of gold and the sheep and the goats. And and you may think of that chapter in your mind as the second coming and the final judgment. But just know that the end of chapter 24 begins that subject. Jesus will describe his return in general, and then he will give all these different parables or illustrations of what things will be like when he returns. And they are all united by the same theme, being prepared for the imminent arrival of an authority figure. Each parable has some kind of master or whoever's in charge returning and calling people to account. Jesus will use that theme to warn his disciples and prepare them to be ready for his return. And so look, let's look tonight at the end of chapter 24. And let's examine how Jesus describes his return and the end of the age. So first we have the general nature of Jesus' return, which we find in verses 36 through 44. You probably notice that there's a shift in emphasis as we come to verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus, throughout Matthew 24, he's been giving us all these different signs to look for. And when you see these things happen, then this is how you should respond. But when we come to verse 36, now Jesus suddenly speaks very generally. Now, about that day or hour, no one knows. You just need to be ready. When Jesus described the events earlier in Matthew 24, he was speaking as a prophet. He was staking his vindication, his reputability on those events coming to pass. But now he says, now about this event, hey, not even the Son of Man knows when that will come to pass. And of course, you also have a contrast between those days, Jesus says, and now about that day or hour, no one knows. So I say all that just to make that point one more time. You've got something very specific being described in the first half of the chapter, and then something very general. It's still a concrete event, but described much more generally in the last half. And that last half would pertain, again, to the disciples' second question. They wanted to know, when's the temple going to be destroyed? Jesus has told them. And they also asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That is what Jesus addresses beginning in verse 36. So, 
what will things be like? Well, interestingly, Jesus starts this whole discussion by saying that not even he knows the day of his return. Now, this has sometimes raised questions for people, you know, interacting with the Christian faith, or it's usually from those who already accept the fact that Jesus is God. How could he make a statement like this in which he doesn't seem to know the day of his return? I don't ever want to be dismissive about serious questions from the scriptures, but I think this is one of those questions where we're able simply to say the confession of faith is that Jesus is both God and man. And this is a very ordinary statement for a person to make, that they do not know the day and the hour of a future event. Not only that, but this is consistent with other statements that are made at least about Jesus in the scriptures that show he had all the ordinary limitations of a human nature. So, for example, we learn in the early chapters of Luke, after the incident in the temple, the 12-year-old Jesus, he comes home, he's subject to his parents, and Luke says he grew in wisdom and knowledge. He grew up like any other 12-year-old boy. He increased in his stature. He began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. And as he went about his ministry, there were times when he was weary, he was thirsty, he was hungry, and eventually, of course, he was crucified and died. Now, the Bible also depicts Jesus as God manifest in the flesh, who knows all sorts of things no human can know. He knew what was in the heart of certain people. He saw Andrew under the fig tree when normal sight couldn't see Andrew under the fig tree. He wouldn't commit himself to certain people because he knew what was in their hearts. So both of those are there in the scripture. So really the question is, but how do both go together? That's where I get it, and that that is a difficult question. Very hard, if not impossible, to comprehend. You know, how can he know all things at one moment and then at another not seem to know the day of his return? I think we just fall back on the idea that scripture lays out both for us. And wise Christians working over time have formulated these categories in which we confess that Jesus has two natures in one person. That is the confession of the ancient creeds. And one of the beauties of the ancient creeds is that's the only time in history where we had the whole church together. Eastern Christians, what we now call Orthodox Christians, Western Christians, what we now call Catholic Christians. As Protestants, we descend from the Western branch of the church. You won't get all those groups back together, most likely, this side of eternity. But when those creeds were formulated, they confessed God manifests in the flesh, two natures in one person. I think that's the best way to make sense of all the data that scripture gives us. Here in this instance, Jesus reflects the human nature and says that no one knows the day nor the hour of his return, but the Father only. And perhaps Jesus saying that only the Father knows is just one more way of distinguishing these events from what we read earlier in Matthew 24. So, as we come into the next verse, we do find out what Jesus does know. He may say, I don't know the day or the hour, but let me tell you what I do know about that day. It will be a day of judgment, and here's what it will be like. People will be 
unprepared. It will be just like it was in the days of Noah. And the point that Jesus is making, he's trying to show a point of comparison with the flood and the flood generation. What's the point of comparison? People were caught unawares. When judgment came, no one could avoid it. Who escaped judgment? Those who made advance preparations. So don't be caught unaware for that day. You're going to be very tempted to be caught unaware. Why? Because of the ordinary events of life. Look again at verses 40 and 41. Two men in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding with a handmill, one taken, and the other left. Those are very ordinary activities. Two men working on a farm or in a field. Two women at a large mill with the millstones grinding grain. As Jesus says here also in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. When we read the Genesis account, we're, we're, we're impressed with a great sinfulness in the times of Noah. Jesus doesn't even draw direct attention to that aspect here. He just says people were going on living their ordinary lives. They were getting married. They were enjoying food. And when I come again, people will be working their jobs and going about their lives. They won't be ready for my return. Why? Because you slip into life, you go about the ordinary activities, and maybe you don't factor in the spiritual. And so Jesus is trying to get his people to be cognizant of that dimension and of the fact that he will come again. Let me make one note on these verses uh, before we move on. Attention's often been drawn to the language of being taken and left here. That's where you get the phrase left behind, that when Jesus comes again, some will be taken, others will be left behind. I actually think Jesus uses the language in the opposite direction in these verses. Look at the end of verse 39. The flood came and took them all away. Now, who was taken away by the flood? Those who were unprepared. Where were they taken away to? To judgment. So when Jesus comes into the next verse and says two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left, it's the idea that one will be taken in the judgment and the other will be left. Two women at the mill, one will be taken in the judgment and the other left. You think when we come into that next chapter, Jesus has these ideas of people being excluded from the feast, departing into eternal fire, whereas others come into the heavenly banquet and kingdom. That's what's going on here. It's not the idea that people are caught up and then they go away with Jesus for a period of time. It's no, when he comes, if we're unprepared, people will be taken away in judgment. Just to be fair, it's not the same Greek word. When we read in verse 39, the flood came and took them away. That is a different Greek word from the next verses. And I think the context shows that they're both in the same ballpark. It's the same idea operating here. The best thing a person can do is be prepared for Christ's return, lest they be taken to judgment. Well, how do you prepare? Verse 42 answers that question. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Now, I think it's very good to ask the question, okay, what does it mean to keep 
watch. And I think Christians may be meaning well, but when they try to describe this status of being on the alert, they almost describe it as being in a constant status of red alert. Like, okay, at any second Jesus could appear. That that cloud is going to split, the trumpet's going to sound, and it's all going to be over. I don't know that anyone is actually able to maintain that kind of status through living their lives. But is Jesus even asking us to think that way? Here's where I think is a better way to ascribe what it means to keep watch. Jesus has emphasized being ready. Why was Noah and his family saved in the flood? Because they made advance preparations. And so I think we could think of being ready more in an ethical sense, necessarily, than an intellectual sense. It's not that I'm consciously thinking Jesus is going to appear at any moment. But ethically, the way I live my life and the way I plan my life is such that should he appear, then I will be found as his servant. You can think about it as this. I'm going to shape my life where I live a continuously acceptable lifestyle. In other words, the patterns of my life, the goals of my life. And so notice what I'm saying. It's okay to have goals. The fact that Jesus could appear tonight doesn't mean you can't future plan. But that you would future plan in such a way that the blueprint of your life and the direction of your life and what you're trying to do with your life is the kind of thing that pleases God. That it brings glory to him. That it's driven by love for him. That it's motivated by love and care for others. And so you're preparing for him to come again because the blueprint of your life is the kind of life that he would find acceptable. And I think that will probably be a factor when we look next week at the parable of the talents. Those who are given bags of gold and use them in a way that is pleasing to the master. So as we come into these verses then that follow, you have this quick illustration in verse 43. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house be broken into. Very kind of common sense, very easy to understand illustration there. If you know when danger is coming, then you will be ready for it. Well, we don't know when it's coming. That's the difficult thing. But we can still be ready. In fact, because we don't know when it will happen, we do well to be ready now. When the flood came, Noah and his family were ready. Again, why? Because they were laying awake watching for clouds? I think it's going to rain this week. No, because they made advance preparations. They were adequately prepared. They had heard the message of God and made the right response. So I think I would just ask that question to us. Does your life plan, wherever you are in life, maybe you've had a lot of life behind you already. Maybe you still have a lot of life in front of you, right in the middle. Does your life plan reflect the values of God's kingdom? Is it the kind of plan that when Jesus comes again, he will accept it? That's the general nature of Christ's return. Now, let's look at this first parable tonight. In verses 45 through 51, again, really the rest of this chapter and all the next chapter is just going to be Jesus illustrating this same point over and over with various parables or illustrations. So the first illustration he gives us, the first parable, is that of the household servants. In verse 45, 
Jesus asked, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now, this servant here, not just, you know, if you think of the ancient household there with all the various servants, this one is on a higher level, so to speak. He's a steward. He actually has control over some of the other fellow servants. And in slavery in the ancient world, slaves could actually own other slaves. They had those various levels of hierarchy. Well, this is the servant who's in control of the whole household. He's got authority over fellow servants. He's able to actually use household resources until the master returns. And I think all of those are intended to call to mind Uh, Some image here of our service to God. He's entrusted things to us. What use are we making of them? Well, Jesus says here, such stewards are expected to be faithful and wise. Or we might say trustworthy, sensible. You know, when you go away, you want to make sure that when you come home, you don't find chaos. Well, what kind of sensible servant does the Lord look for? Well, verse 46 says, It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. In other words, those who faithfully discharge their duties. Now, by the way, notice, when Jesus says it will be good for that servant, we could also translate that as blessed. It's the same word that occurs in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek and blessed are the merciful. You want to be in that category of blessed people who are members of God's kingdom now and see him face to face when he comes again? Then Jesus says, be faithful to what I give you. Be responsible and spiritually prepared for when I come again. And if you are, Jesus says in verse 47, truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his positions. Those who are faithful receive a promotion and if you think about it okay the steward he's got a temporary responsibility be faithful while i'm gone when the master returns and finds him faithful he gets a permanent position again i think that's analogous to the realm of the spiritual i think jesus intends for it to be the lives we live now are in a sense temporary James says they're like a breath. I know they don't always feel that way there's long days and long seasons of life but compared with eternity It is temporary. It is short. And Jesus is saying, use that time well, because then the eternal outcome is what really matters. That's one possible outcome for when our Lord comes. We're given a second possible outcome in verse 48. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. So here's another potential outcome. I don't think Jesus is intending us to think of this as the same servant. Like, hey, he was doing really well, and then he fell off the wagon. No, it's just here's two ways that a servant could act. He could be faithful or he could be abusive. He could see, you know... The master's taking him time, long time coming back. I think I've got a lot of time to do as I wish before my master returns. And there may be a hint here at the fact that early Christians were expecting Jesus to return quickly. And over time, they had to reckon with the fact that it might be a long time before he returned. I mean, I'm making a distinction in Matthew 24 between the fall of Jerusalem 
and the return of the Lord. I think those are legitimate distinctions Jesus intended and that the disciples understood. But they may have still thought that both would come in quick succession. So here's the fall of Jerusalem. All right, Jesus' return, it is imminent. I bet it's going to be any day. And it was only as time went on that it began to dawn on them, okay, it's not quite here yet. And so maybe as Matthew writes up these words of Jesus, you know, he, he wants to give that hint here, hey, I know he hasn't come back yet. And we're having to reckon with this fact that, that it may not be in our lifetime, but don't go to the opposite extreme and start thinking, okay, well, he'll never appear. You know, that's what Peter talks about. Hey, everything's the same. He's never going to come back. When we start thinking that way, then we stop being faithful to the Lord. And, and what do we see this servant here doing? He takes what the master gives him, and instead of taking care of others, he uses it for selfish indulgence. And why? Because he is focused solely on the present. He's not thinking of a reckoning one day. He's not thinking of the eternal. He's thinking merely of the present. And so we read in verses 50 and 51 that the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I want you to notice what's interesting about uh, these two servants. So the, the servant who's unfaithful, he says, my master is never going to come back. It's taken forever. I've got all the time in the world. We always think we have more time. And in his case, he had less time than he realized. The master came when he didn't expect him, caught him by surprise, and he received this very graphic judgment. Now, neither slave knew when the master would return. That's important. It's not like the first guy had some insight. Oh, I know how this is going to work out, so I can plan accordingly. No, neither knew when the master would return. But you know what? For the first slave, that didn't matter. Why? Because he was ready at any time. You see, if you're ready now, you don't have to worry about when the Lord returns. It's only those who aren't prepared who should be concerned. Now, ironically, that may be the group that isn't concerned. But it reminds me of a saying I heard a few weeks ago. I'd never heard it, but it's just one of those ones, as soon as you hear it, it makes sense. If you tell the truth, you never have to remember anything. Is that an older saying? You heard that before? You don't have to cover your lies. You don't have to cover your tracks. You tell the truth, you never have to remember anything. If you're ready now, you never have to worry about when he will come again. It could be today. It could be at the end of your lifetime. It could be in another thousand years. And that's really hard to conceive of, but that's because we're humans. We don't know when it will be, but being ready now means it doesn't matter. And Jesus does use some very strong, lurid language here in verse 51, simply to emphasize, you know, there's serious consequences of not being ready. No one wants to be in that position. And so again, I would just ask as we come to uh, the end tonight, what does it mean to be ready? One author writes, The readiness of the good slave consists not in sitting by the window watching for his master, but in getting on with the job he has been given. While the fault of the bad slave is in his assumption that the master will not be back soon and that therefore he will not be held to account. 
We understand that one day we will give an account, as we considered this morning. We get on with the job we've been given. So at this point in life, what job has God given to you? Could be in retirement, could be still working, could be at a younger stage of life. What, what job has God given you to, to do? And, and what thought have you given to the future? What planning are you making for whatever years may come, because that's legitimate and wise and good in God's eyes. But is it the kind of plan? Is it the kind of blueprint that when the Lord appears, will say, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to find you doing. Scripture will teach us. God will give us wisdom. The Spirit will guide us in Christ as our example. So let's pray to that end and give thanks to God. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead, vindicated by his resurrection as a prophet, and much more than a prophet. So grant that we will, by your grace, know your help, your grace, your strength, your leading in the coming week, and that we would be living as those who are faithful to you, to make whatever preparations are necessary, to to repent of any sin, to lay aside any weight that entangles us, and to look at our calendars and our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams and bring them under your lordship. That's the good way to live anyway. Should you prosper us or should you try us? Should we be flourishing or should we be afflicted? Lord, give sufficient grace to each person here and for our church. and Spread this good news through our families and communities. And, and come quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing in closing. Hymn 697, Wonderful Words of Life, Hymn 697. We'll sing all three verses and stand with me.